Let me introduce myself. My name's Mark Dransfield, and I have the honour of being the chairman uh, until June next year, at any rate, of the Royal Aeronautical Society's Flight Simulation Group. Quite a few of us have been here today uh, enjoying uh, some excellent presentations uh, at the Flight Crew Training Conference, uh, talking about flight crew training, changing the paradigm. As I said before, welcome to the Society and to what is the Captain Ray Jones Memorial Lecture. Captain Ray Jones was a founder and incredibly influential member uh, of the flight simulation group when it was originally formed. Uh, and this lecture was really established, we hold it every year, uh, to commemorate his enormous contribution in the bringing together of flight training and simulation um, within the society and to help get the work that we do as a society uh, to, to further those causes underway. And it's in recognition of that expertise and that absolute passion that he had that we hold this lecture uh, every year uh, related to flight simulation and training. Last This time last year, we were privileged to have uh, Dieter Harms give a very enlightening lecture and this uh, on uh, MPL. And this year, we have uh, no lesser person, in fact, Captain Steve Billet, Group Executive Director, as you can see here, uh, from CTC Aviation, who it's my honour to introduce to you this evening to give the Ray Jones <coughs> Memorial Lecture. So let me tell you a little bit about Steve. I'm sure he won't mind, uh, but started in 1969, as he says, with a clear passion to do anything that involved flying or to do anything that got him to fly. And in 1979, joined Britannia 737, Boeing 767, and saw some of the big changes that came along in flight simulation with the introduction of uh, zero flight time and flight simulation and, and helping introduce CRM into the airline. In 1993, he left to co-found uh, CTC uh, as one of the most, I would say, successful FTOs and TRTOs, both of which Steve has been head of training for in his time at CTC. I know, I think it's right, Steve, you were also one of the crew members of the original Proving Flight for EasyJet as well, along along with Morris. Um, and today, Steve manages CTC's private jet management company, uh, I believe, flying around a local billionaire, but that's where the wealth stops, I believe, Steve, in the back of that particular airplane. He's a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society and also an upper freeman of, of GAPAN. So I think you'll agree with me. Uh, he's extremely well qualified to talk to us on what he's called the final frontier training technology versus pilot performance. I know Steve's going to give us a fascinating talk this evening. So please, will you join me in welcoming Captain Steve Billets? Wow, what an intro. Not quite sure how to follow that, really, or do I actually deserve the accolades that I've been given? So let me start with saying uh, to everyone a very good evening, uh, and a huge thank you, obviously, for spending some of your perfectly good drinking time listening to me drone on about something I believe I know something about. I am going to demonstrate probably that that is a falsehood, but I'm going to try and con you that my thoughts actually have some relevance in today's world. They're things that I actually really genuinely believe in. So can I start by thanking the society, particularly the Flight Simulation Group, for making me, sorry, I think that should be offering me the opportunity to give this lecture, and in doing so, allowing me to address a particular concern of mine. 
My fundamental question is, why, with all the training technology now in common use, why do we still see major issues with pilot performance? Somewhere in here there is a dichotomy that is not working. I call this, as you can see, the final frontier. It has nothing to do with space, for all you Star Trek fans that are out there. It has everything to do with what I believe is a barrier to flight safety, which we have not yet found a way of cracking. As Mark introduced, the lecture honors the life and work of one of the preeminent advocates and passionate believers in the value and qualification of flight simulators. Ray Jones had the wisdom, the drive, and the foresight to see the potential and the need for high-quality flight simulation. His work and the dedication to continue that task continues today to be very much work in progress with today's flight simulation group. They continue to play a major global role in developing training technology, and I firmly believe we are the better for it. So why am I here hoping that I will not be wasting your time? If you've read my bio, you may well have gathered that I have had a long and abiding interest in human factors, especially in the development of training courses, monitoring programs, and evaluation processes of that type of training. I was part of the original working groups and committees that proliferated under the CRM banner back in the beginning of the early 80s. Back then, we had convinced ourselves that CRM was the answer to crew performance, that we needed effective human factors training, courses delivered outside the traditional training equipment, i.e. the flight simulator, followed by training the trainers. Develop in all of those people these new skills, how to recognize those embryonic skills, and lead us to a new accident-free paradise, having corrected crew performance problems. If only it were true, and to some extent, the obvious question it poses is, did we achieve it? The answer to me is both yes and no. Why do I say that? In putting the lecture together, I did argue with myself that it was not going to be your typical death by PowerPoint presentation. And that's certainly my intention. That I would, my intention is to speak from the heart for things that I really and genuinely believe in. However, to set the scene, and I know that you've seen these statistics before, and I do apologize for that, but let me summarize where I think the statistics say we are. We've all seen these statistics before. Mr. Boeing does an excellent job of production. We know that these safety statistics are based on, typically, the number of millions of departures. That very much defines how we've seen the growth in those millions of departures as we move through the period on the slide running from 1992 through to 2011. We can see that in those nine years there has been tremendous growth in those millions of departures. And we know that the industry is continuing to grow year on year. It is extrapolating. We can see that on that Boeing slide, since 1959 there were 610 million departures and over a billion flight hours flown on commercial jet aircraft. We know that those order books are full, and we know that those order books will put yet more aircraft into service with more millions of departures. This slide is probably one of the most commonly used slides of all in looking at accident data. 
What I want to explore is what has happened on the right-hand side of that slide. Sadly, I guess we all look at that slide and draw the same conclusions. It's an awful thing to look at a slide which talks about accidents, be they fatal or non-fatal. They are, unfortunately, a part of our industry. We would love to see zero accidents, but we know that is not an achievable goal. There are some things I think that we're missing. If I look back to when I started flying, and there's no, room, no truth to the rumor that I served Lindbergh's sandwiches, it was only 1969, the accident rate per million departures was around five. That was a huge reduction from 10 years earlier. Back on the left-hand side of that slide, as you can see, back in early 59, the rate was closer to 50, a truly horrific number. And the industry has moved a very, very, very long way since those dark days. However, I think when you look at that slide, for me, it's telling me a terrible story. Because we can see how much improvement there has been in flight safety. We can see how much we have reduced those accidents. We can see the reasons why we have been able to reduce some of those accidents. And they're well known to us, certainly, in the industry. However, the worry for me is when you start to look at what happened since around about the early 1980s. We've seen an enormous reduction in the number of those fatal and non-fatal accidents we have seen a huge reduction in the number of people we're killing. But what's occurred? We accept that there will be good years. We've had more of them, wouldn't we? We'd all wish for that. And we know that there have been particularly bad years. But what we're looking at here is a slide which is really telling us a story. It's telling us a story that there is a situation which we cannot seem to effectively address. And that is that we cannot seem to eradicate where we got to on the right-hand side of the slide, which says we plateaued. We've made huge improvements in flight safety. But we've got to a point where if you avoid those odd years, we've got to the point where we can't seem to eradicate that final frontier, as I've called it. I guess, in a way, the obvious question is having shown you the statistics, and I will accept fully that I can prove anything I want to with showing you different sets of statistics. What I want to focus on, though, is why. Why have we got this plateau? Why have we not gone any further? What is it that's stopping us breaking through what I call the final frontier? If we go back to those early 1980s and just look at where we were then, we'd seen the accident rates drop by over 90%. We were seeing the benefits of those early CRM courses, focusing very much on crew management, developing new skills, recognizing some inappropriate skills that people continue to present to us in the flight deck, and we saw that there were improvements in crew performance. We also saw in those early 80s some massive changes in the training technology. It's interesting to reflect that back in 1980, there were only 232 full-flight simulators in the world globally. We saw the introduction of wide visuals, including daylight, making huge advantages in visual technology. We saw the enhancement of motion systems with the introduction of six-axis hydrostatic systems. We saw huge improvements in simulator latency. There was an enormous amount of time and investment going into effective recurrent training and not just testing to destruction, which was the old ways. So certainly all good, 
and the improvements in flight safety, certainly very obvious. Although this slide only covers the period from 2002 through to 2011, it's really interesting to note something here. That fatalities in the cruise phase are almost as high as the combined final approach phases and higher than the takeoff and initial climb phases. That's a really interesting view because if you ask most people where is the most dangerous part of flight assail, either the takeoff or they'll say, no, it must be the approach landing. Probably a moral in the story here, which is only go on flights which don't have a crew section. <laughs> no, I jest. What's perhaps even more interesting is when you look at those same accident statistics and you have a look at what's happened when we've introduced new types. Clearly what we've got here is looking back at aircraft going all the way back to 1959, right the way through to 2011. What's really interesting when you look at that, and you look at those old first and sometimes second generation aircraft, we can see that those accident rates in those early jet aircraft gave us the original data that we saw back in 1959 where we were seeing accident rates approaching 50 per million departures. What's really interesting when you look down that list of aeroplanes is just have a look at where we started to introduce the fully automated, fully integrated, complex fourth-generation jet aircraft. And I can well remember sitting in an airline world where a very clever salesman from Airbus persuaded this airline that I was then flying for that they were going to develop this incredible single-aisle new-generation aircraft and it could not crash. This aircraft was going to be protected by automation and computers to the point where it was uncrashable. Yes. We found that wasn't true either. But I think it's really interesting when you look at those statistics and you look at those fourth-generation modern aeroplanes and you look at where we've got to with, regrettably, the fact that we have to accept that there is some evidence that some of these aircraft are actually generating issues, not removing them. So, yes, we've seen some huge advantages in flight safety, what we're now picking up, but the very fact of some of these very modern, highly complex, highly automated aircraft, we're actually starting to get some new problems. And it's not just pilot complacency that is one of the issues. And it's not just the degradation of, of manual handling skills. If we go back to our 1980s situation, then what have we seen when we move from 1980 into today? Today we've got over 1,200 full-flight simulators in service in the world. Many of those are less than five years old. Overall, a six-fold increase in the number of training technology devices. Many of those simulators are clear to level D, and that standard we know now, thanks to a lot of work from the society indeed, has proven now to be a very high-quality simulation, very strong on fidelity. The establishment of high-quality QTGs, flyouts, SMEs, constant measurements, constant comparison, capable of delivering a hugely representative view to the pilot, be it in recurrent or initial training, of exactly what that aircraft will do. And along the way, of course, we've also added an enormous number of other training technologies. Since the 1980s, we know that we can bombard you with abbreviations of things that we have used as tools, techniques that we have added 
into the mix of training, all of which, theoretically, have helped us to get us to where we are. What could we mention? AQP, TCAS, TORS, RAS, EGPWS, FDM, FOCWA, IOSA, ASRES, CHIRP, Confidential Human Factor, SOQA, and now Threat and Error Management. They're all different abbreviations. They're all different tools which are taking us to the same place. Build up the technology, layer it upon layer so that we actually get different tools to use for different purposes. And you have to say that much of it has been hugely successful. However, I would still bring you back to where I showed you that slide where it showed that we had plateaued. So notwithstanding all of this simulation, notwithstanding our knowledge of flight simulation, notwithstanding our knowledge of how to use them, notwithstanding all of the things that we have added into the mix of the tools that we use with flight simulation, we still have a problem because we still can't seem to eradicate that plateau. It's still there. And regrettably, it continues. That's why I go back and remind you that what I call this is the final frontier. Perhaps to understand why, then, is the point and purpose of the lecture. To me, it's very clear that notwithstanding our very best efforts and the use of all of this technology, we still cannot prevent pilot performance and crew-related failures from occurring all too regularly. So who and what can we blame? Some would say, of course, well, let's go find the guilty bastard and hang them. Not exactly constructive. I believe, fundamentally, that what we have failed to do is to address pilot behavior. We have failed to address pilot behavior because we have been too focused on performance. The question is, can I substantiate it? Let's look at some facts. We know that type rating training on complex aircraft has hardly changed its focus or regulation, no matter how complex automatic airplanes have become. Training syllabi for those airplanes are largely box-ticking volume-based exercises where you need to see almost everything but can understand not that much. Skill tests still contain content that apply to early first-generation jets and they certainly haven't embraced the latest complex automatic aircraft. Too much essential training is left to the next phase of training in order for it to become effective. Too many trainers do not use the opportunities they have to focus on quality rather than quantity. Personally, I would rather see one exercise managed really effectively by the crew no matter what type of training I'm delivering, rather than five completed to an indifferent standard purely because I am required to show the crew that particular concept or exercise. Perhaps the most dumbing of all of these is that we are failing to recognize pilot and crew behavior, and therefore we fail to address it. Why am I talking about behavior? Of the tools we have, Clearly, trainers are given an enormous battery of different tools, different essential skills that we must have if we are going to deliver effective training. In talking about behavior, one of the most important tools I find, now well-established, introduced in the late 1980s, 
well used both in training and in lots of other types now of environments, are no techs, non-technical skills. I'm not sure how much of that is actually readable. What, what this is is a, a tool the trainer is using to look at inappropriate and ineffective or equally on the other side appropriate and effective behaviours. We are looking at the concept of the pilot as a behaviourist. We are obsessing, we are looking at, we are observing, we are looking at everything that they do and say. This is not, this is not performance. And I think for me there is one really important point that comes out of this. And that is that performance can be assessed. Performance can be graded. Behaviour, quite different in my view, can only be observed. Therefore, behaviour cannot be graded. What matters is what's going on in here. The most private working place of all. How do we observe it? That's where you need the trainer. Hugely skilled in observing those behaviours, both good and bad, recognising for what they are, recognizing they must need some form of resolution. We cannot leave without tackling those issues in any forms of training, behaviors that we believe are inappropriate. It's not the only tool by any means, and there are many others out there. If you're beginning to think in your minds that, okay, he might have a point here, maybe behavior is that important, let me take you through an example I'm sure some of you probably saw it, and probably saw it in the same way I did. This was quite recently the basis of a Channel 4 documentary, Chaos in the Cockpit. You know I'm talking about Air France 447. Clearly I am completely unqualified to talk about Air France 447, and there are plenty of forums, and there are plenty of people far more able than I am to actually look at exactly what went on or to comment on it. However, this was primetime television in the UK. It's been watched many times. It's available on 4OD. Anyone can watch it if you haven't seen it. And whilst we accept that television documentaries are what television documentaries are, and they're clear out to make some very strong points, there were some, for me, some really horrific statements and questions that came up from that program that clearly relate to Air France 447. I'm not in any way here condemning the crew, as you'll discover shortly. What I'm saying is that those comments came out of that program, they were asked about that crew, they were posed, and they sought answers to why those things occurred. For me, one of the most surprising things is, let's remember, no pilot sets out to make a mistake. No crew wants to be the result of something that occurs in flight. We all want to do our best. I'm absolutely certain that that is true. We have tremendous pride in our profession. We want to be seen as skilled operators. We want to be recognized with respect by the people we fly with. So how can a really well-trained crew, flying in a very mature airline, flying a well-established type, with time on type from all three pilots, from a book full of procedures, in an aircraft full of computers that supposedly can't crash. How can it occur that something like this and those statements get made about a terrible accident? 
why did 228 more people have to die for the industry to learn something? And it's not just about pitot tubes that froze up. It isn't just about that. It's not just about weaknesses in training. It isn't just about that either. We all know that aircraft accidents invariably, through that classic Swiss cheese model, all come together, line up, and lead us, unfortunately, to the scene of yet another accident. The real issue, of course, is, for me, why did it happen? Why, accepting the crew did not want to get it wrong, so why did it happen? We know that we live in a world now where we operate intensely complex automated aircraft. We know that in this case there was some unusual and perhaps quite extreme weather phenomena that clearly also impacted on the operation. The accident report focused on the lack of, quote, effective training. This wasn't a crew that wasn't trained. The question was, was the training effective? The report also identified that the failures occurred that the crew were not trained for, that they did not recognize, that the crew had degraded manual flying skills. And we know that is a comment now made regularly in relation to automated airplanes. No doubt there are other factors as well. And what was the answer from the accident report? The recommendation was for additional training, specifically install recognition and recovery techniques. I thought we've been doing that for years. More simulator time. Yeah, everyone loves more simulator time. Hours spent in the sweat box, invariably there's always something to learn, and clearly there should be more to learn. It's all good. But for me, I think we need to remember something I think really quite fundamental. This aircraft crashed because the crew did not understand what was going on. This aircraft crashed because the crew did not understand what was going on. They didn't mean to make those mistakes, and no one's accusing them of that, certainly not me. One of the final and perhaps most telling quotes that came out was, quote, it's all wrong. It's the training. The training did not address the crew's needs or their understanding. That seems to suggest that there's something wrong. So this was a desperately sad accident. But was it a one-off? Have we seen other accidents? Could we identify other accidents where this sort of thing has occurred? Is confusion common in today's flight decks? I think we probably know the answer to that one. We know that in today's modern complex flight decks, regrettably, confusion, be it small or, God forbid, significant, is there. It is a reality of our life. The aircraft I fly has 432 different submodes that are within an integrated aeroplane. There are nearly 600 checklists of different types run in different combinations. Can you imagine trying to work in that environment where you are now trying to sift through all of this and get to the heart of the problem, to understand what the aeroplane is telling you, to understand what the aeroplane is actually doing? Whether it's mode confusion in the automation, confusion from what the systems are telling you, complex failures delivered in combination can cause terrible confusion to the crews. I was talking most interestingly to a software development engineer 
in one of the major aircraft manufacturers. And this was someone responsible in part for quite a lot of the software design on the aircraft I fly. What was really interesting that was this was an incredibly intelligent guy. He had an enormous amount of knowledge, but very little practical experience. He described all sorts of things he could do. What he could not ask the question was, why should we have it? Not, you can have it. He was coming at it, in my view, from the wrong aspect totally. He was looking at performance. He was not looking at behavior. It's interesting. If you look at another slide, and without testing your eyesight, I think it's really interesting that whilst it only reflects the statistics from 2002 through to 2011, what I would ask you to see is what's on the left-hand side of that slide. What is the most obvious thing that you can see there? The number of fatal accidents explored by this working group identified the single biggest cause of fatalities in aircraft is loss of control in flight. Air France 447, regrettably, and others. Why should that be the case? How can crews get so confused they make these mistakes and cause these fatalities? How do we get these accidents occurring? What is it that's wrong fundamentally with our training? We spend huge amounts of time and money developing the highest training skills we can define. But for some reason, it continues to go wrong. Could I find other accidents where loss of control in recent times has caused fatalities? Regrettably, yes. You probably know them as well as I do. Ethiopian Airlines, 737-800 out of Beirut. The Airbus A320 near Perpignan air test. The Sharm El Sheikh, 737-300. The 737-400 off Sulawesi, Indonesia. And of course the Turkish Airlines 737-800 at Amsterdam. All caused by confusion. So what is it that causes confusion? My submission, what causes confusion, is pilot behavior. It's not things that they don't necessarily know. It's not necessarily things that they actually do. It's things that cause them to behave in an inappropriate and ineffective way. For me, unless we can find a way to address what I call pilot behavior, I don't believe that plateau will change. I do believe that there will be good years coming, but I fear that there will be bad years as well. And that plateau, I think there, is a challenge to the industry to find a way of cracking it. If I could see that plateau disappear in my flying lifetime, I, for one, would be hugely delighted. I'd love to see the death of that fatal accident slide. I really would. If we go back and remember that those accidents I've mentioned, none of those crews meant for that to occur. None of them meant to lose control of the airplane. None of them certainly meant to kill their passengers or even themselves. But it happened. And this was notwithstanding how much time and energy has been spent in delivering initial type ratings, effective recurrent training, using the tools that airlines use to improve flight safety, those things still occurred. I've tried to persuade you that those things, perhaps not to the same degree, those things continue to occur in today's modern flight decks. And we know that it's a very private working place. Notwithstanding the data monitoring that goes on, notwithstanding how much data we collect, and notwithstanding how much we use that, it is still a very private working place. To me, Pilot behavior 
is something the industry has to find a new way of approaching and a new way of tackling. For those of us that spend our lives in flight simulators, and I think I've probably got as many simulator hours as I have flying hours, that tells you much about my ability. How many times have we seen something happen in a simulator and wonder where that came from? What, what triggered that? Why did that pilot or that crew behave in that way? Was it a brain fart? Was it a momentary moment of madness? Was it utter stupidity? Was it something they just misunderstood and got wrong on the day? We've all seen those things. My concern is, actually, what are we seeing? Are we seeing a lack of knowledge? Are we seeing a failure in crew performance? Or actually, are we seeing something that is attributable to inappropriate and ineffective behavior by either pilot or, God forbid, by the crew? If we are going to make behavioral observation effective to understand the impact of why people do those things they do, the thing we must have in that simulator is someone capable of recognizing that behavior, of attributing that behavior, assessing that behavior, and finding a way of resolving that behavior. We need to get inside the pilot's head to understand why they do the things that they do. Not just that it's wrong, not just that it wasn't done to standard, not just that it didn't comply with the procedures, or we didn't follow the checklist correctly. But what was it that triggered something that was wrong in the behavior of that pilot? So by now, I suspect you think I'm probably mad. I've gone off on completely the wrong track, that I'm talking out of my backside and don't know much of what I'm talking about. What I'm trying to do is recognize that I think in order to maximize flight safety, there are a number of things we critically need. We need layers of training. We need layers of different tools that we need. And I do firmly believe that behavior is one of those layers that we can lay on all the other things that we do and make, therefore, training and proficiency actually far more effective. I'm not sure that I've convinced you, but you would be pleased to hear I stopped. And therefore, I won't hold you any more from some valuable drinking time. Uh, I'm told by those that matter, and that's certainly not me, that I'm uh, happy to take questions, comments, challenges of any kind, and, and very happy to do so. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope you, like me, will have found that uh, an incredibly interesting lecture by Steve. And as he's just intimated, uh, he'll be happy to take the few questions, which we have which we have 10 minutes or so for. So we have some people with microphones. Uh, Roger Lever from Jet2. Um, Steve, if we accept what I think you're suggesting, that uh, we have the proficiency and all the other skills to actually avoid these accidents, but they're happening all the same, is it conceivable that there's a level of complacency being reached with pilots, that things don't go wrong, so they don't expect things to go wrong. Um, we have one training captain, well, I hope more than one training captain at our company, who still goes back to the old way of doing things that I remember being taught long, a long time ago. By the way, I, was, I also learned to fly on chipmunks too. I'm that old. I remember a ground loop. I was very good at those. Um, that he briefs or thinks in his own mind, say, I'm going to do an approach here. What's going to happen if... And I'm not sure that that is in the mindset of more recently qualified pilots. So the complacency is there. Aircraft doesn't have much go wrong with it, so we don't expect it to go wrong, so we're not ready when it does. That's all. No, I think that's absolutely true, Roger. Uh, we all know that if we are going to have really effective standards in training, the key element to that is the trainer. 
We all know that trainers invariably, again, work in one of the most private working places possible, which is inside a flight simulator, whether you use onboard cameras or other forms of data recording. We know it's a very private workplace. And those trainers, we know, will come with different biases, different views, different opinions, and different backgrounds. And we know that the volume of training required, sometimes by syllabi, can challenge even the best trainer to make the training event really effective. And we know that things will occur invariably inside a training environment where we actually get no time to resolve them. You know, the, the classic example is, well, the first V1 cut didn't go that well, so we'll put it in at the end and just go for a repeat. You've got the last 10 minutes in the simulator, the next crew is waiting to get on board, the simulator time is really squeezed, let's just go for one more V1 cut. And it doesn't go well. It was no, perhaps not that much better than the first one. What do you do? Different trainers will take a different view. My concern is, you know, going back to the point I was trying to get across is that it may well be that the technique was wrong, it may be the procedure was wrong, it may be the profile was wrong, but there's something going fundamentally wrong there that we don't seem to be capable of addressing. My concern is when you then go back into a pilot's training file, are we actually reading and looking for those indicators that confirm that this is someone actually who is troubled, who is easily confused, who is of very limited capacity, who with the wrong person on the wrong day in the wrong aeroplane is going to find managing that problem a real challenge. So do we, do we identify that by performance and behavior in the simulator generally? I know that those of us not AGQP have got line checks to think about as well. Uh, my, I think my point is that, that in the simulator anyway, we've all seen it, guys are aroused you know, anyway by being there. Once they've got that over, I suspect there's a lot of time they're not when they're sitting fat, dumb, and happy in the cruise. And we know that, you know, we all know, Roger, we can see lots and lots of examples, you know, even just, you know, away from the simulator and the line, recognizing people you're flying with, you know, are suffering from extreme complacency. You know, one of my classic tricks, which I'm afraid I play regularly being a really effective trainer, is just cover up the N1 gauges and ask the guy what, what engine thrust is shown. Are you aware? Do you know what the thrust is or don't you? And, of course, you know the obvious answer, don't you? They've got no idea what N1 is indicated by the autothrottle system because they're just accepting your throttle is doing the job. And it always does, doesn't it? And don't get me going on the subject of, of Airbus thrust levers that don't move. <laughs> I haven't got time to debate that one. I'm an ex-British uh, Airways captain on the old 111. So um, very old technology, but surely a lot of this, these accidents that occur... Uh, are down to the fact that the um, pilots concerned are more, and modern aeroplane, I'm talking about complex aeroplanes, are more concerned about having the autopilot operate the aeroplane, and I haven't got the confidence to fly the aircraft manually. Now, and I'll go back to say how my flying career, it was great fun to fly the aeroplane manually, and it was a great achievement to continue to fly manually. Uh, and um, I just, that's my view, I don't know whether you agree. Uh, but do you think it's a matter of confidence level? Uh, and one other little point. Um, have the pilots that fly today forgotten their basic training? In other words, uh, the basic concept that power plus attitude equals performance. Because I do feel with the Air France situation that if they had applied that technique, basic technique, and looked at the pressure instruments and flown without the airspeed indicator, which we've done many times before, it wouldn't have been a disaster. To be fair to everyone, we all know that you know you set 5% attitude and 85% thrust, you're going to fly safely. 
doesn't matter what else is going on. You know, you're going to be within a reasonable speed range and you're going to be fairly close to maintaining an altitude. And the aircraft will fly safely. It's easy to sit here in the calm of this environment and I admit that if you did that, it would work really well. I've just done my own recurrent training um, in one of these complex modern airplanes. And of course, we're being now bombarded with additional training of blocked and frozen pitots at high altitude, high altitude stalls, and stall recovery. You know, all of this is now being thrown into the mix to allow us to experience. And there's no doubt when you look at high altitude, when you look at a complex airplane, which starts to lose the data sources that you are used to using all the time, routinely, it is very easy to get confused. All too easy. You can then go on and say, okay, what's happened to manual flying skills? Uh, and I fully accept the comment. In order to be fair to everyone who goes through a complex initial type rating, those, those type ratings on these complex airplanes now have an enormous amount of volume that we have to get through. And quite rightly, the airlines that buy these aircraft, understandably, and it's written in almost every airline SOP manual I've ever read, quite correctly require, encourage, very strongly recommend the use of automation at all times. Why? It flies the airplane efficiently, safely, it creates capacity for the crew, and because of the sheer ability of automation, it does things we could only dream of when I started flying back in 1969. And you have to say that, as Roger pointed out, you know, the routinely it works really well. Almost all of the time. Until it goes wrong. And then when it goes wrong, you know, it was one thing to see a classic engine failure. Oh, which, you know, it's failed again. I mean, it used to fly 707s one way or another. One of them was always failing. It was quite normal. You know, it was, oh yes, another three engine ferry. What fun. <laughs> but, but the reality now is those things very rarely occur. So when these things happen, the wrong crew, complacent, understimulated, over-dependent on automation, because they are required to use it all the time, and that requires a skill level as well, then you can see how those things occur. If you then look at, at syllabi through the FTO world, and you look at how those syllabi have changed, you know, we've taken spin training out of the system. Aerobatics is certainly not part of the uh, the normal training event, you know, even through the PPL stage. So, you know, we, we've made a lot of different steps for a lot of different reasons that have taken us to where we've got to. And we all know that, you know, recognizing those challenges and training to them, as Air France 447 pointed out, is a huge challenge for the industry. Hi, Steve. Dave Mason from uh, Emirates Airline. Um, Two questions, or one question in two parts. The, uh, the first is, um, with the loss of control incidents that there have been, and there have been a number of them, um, typically they appear to be from lack of scanning from the, the cruiser on the aircraft. In old aircraft, you had separate instruments that you actually had to look at. New aircraft, we have a very small, essentially, EFIS footprint which means that you stare at one instrument rather than actually scanning around it, which is subtly different to the way that you, you actually scan a, an electronic uh, wide-angled head-up display. In a head-up display, you still have to scan around it to find in, information rather than staring at a particular instrument and trying to dig information out of it. So the first part is, um, do you think that EFIS and the design of EFIS has anything to do with scanning problems? The second question is to do with our training system. 
Um, in my job as um, the chief of standards, typically when somebody isn't making the grade, I find out about it through our electronic grading system. Inevitably, you look back to that particular person's history and people see the problem probably on the first the first simulator session and then they uh, shovel excrement i mean proper company sideways and very rarely do we seem to have incomplete sessions we just push people until they fail so two parts one efis does that affect the way that crew the pilots are able to scan in your view and two um, how, what can we do to prevent people pushing the problem to the right until the pilots break. Two good points, I think, and uh, let's address the, uh, the first one. Uh, I think there are issues with SCAN. Uh, I think they are significant, and I think they are significantly deteriorating. And a classic example, uh, last Sunday I did my own recurrent training in the simulator, complex automated type. Uh, one, of, one of the items on that uh, was an approach flown on standby instrumentation. Well, if you wanted to see a grown man cry, just look at my face. Um, you would have seen some very ineffective skills on my part because my scan had degraded so far that faced with a very basic instrument, perfectly capable of guiding me to the runway, um, it was one hell of a challenge to use it. Not just of its size, not just because of the rate of response, but because of the slowness of my scan. And I can't believe I'm the only pilot that gets there. I have to believe, actually, you know, Let's be honest and hold up our hands. We'd all find that quite a challenge. Because we become so used to this focus on this single instrument. I now fly an airplane that has HUD, has EVS and SVS. I am bombarded by so much information in front of me, I actually don't know where to look anymore. I think, oh, I know there's a runway out there, I'll land. Because actually so much of this electronic information is literally in my face. And yes, it's fantastic to see it. And yes, it's wonderful to have things like you know, the backup something like RAS or WAS to make the approach. However, you know, you're just loading up complexity on complexity, and I'm concerned that some people just don't have the capacity to do it. And I think, therefore, you know, you get the wrong crew, wrong airplane, wrong day, and you're looking for, unfortunately, going towards the scene of an incident. And regrettably, that's exactly what the statistics say. We actually don't go back to basics. We get too concerned by trying to resolve why we don't understand why the automation isn't working correctly. Because our natural inclination is, well, it must be something I've done. What don't I understand? Uh, let, let's try another mode. And regrettably, we know that happens. I think the issue with how we solve training problems is, is a classic, and I think that day that's been there forever. And I think all too often we see trainers who, who know something is fundamentally wrong but can't identify what. For me, so many trainers can see why, in other words, what's gone wrong today, but they don't understand the methodology behind it. And they actually don't want to because they haven't got that skill. So it's actually much easier to say, well, it was okay-ish, but there's another four sessions to go and there's plenty of time to catch up. So they just push the problem on sideways. And hopefully you find someone who either can say, this is a real no-hoper. There's just no way forward here. We have to call a halt. Or get someone who gets the light on inside the pilot's head and gets them to change their performance totally. But we know that's not easy. Handling... Handling the problem children will always be, I think, the most difficult thing to do in any training system. Can I just, uh, sorry, can I just ask you about the, the head of display and the ethos? Do you find it easy to pick information out of the HUD than you do out of the ethos? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, but I do think it means that if, in order to do that, I think you need to use the HUD regularly, not just 
when you think you need to use it. And I think that's a weakness in procedures. We've got time for a couple more questions. There's one over there. I see a gentleman with his hand. Yeah, hi. Um, uh, it's Ron Parker. I'm a retired uh, British Airways trading captain. Um, I know within CTC uh, you're now developing a, an, an MPL course. Uh, my question really is whether that's actually going to help to address this problem or make it slightly worse. I think there are, the, the jury's probably out to some extent, but if you, if you think about the fundamental objective of any license-based training, the objective is to create the pilot actually that the airline really wants. And I just have never understood the relevance of so much traditional PPL single-engine flying, VFR, multi-engine, VFR, and then IFR training, because it doesn't seem to produce the crew member we actually want in today's modern flight deck. The MPL is designed to create the airline pilot, not, not the air taxi pilot, not the VFR instructor. It only has one purpose. Whether or not the structure of the course is or isn't right will only fully emerge over the passage of time. I know there are concerns about some of the content of those courses, whether there truly is enough manual handling in there, whether simulators can provide the fidelity to produce the understanding, technique, response to, recognition of, all of those things that happen. But if you're looking at how to create today's ideal airline pilot to fly today's modern automated aeroplanes, I think we've got more of a chance of achieving that with an MPL-trained pilot than we have with a classically trained. Uh, yeah, is it is it not then that um, the behaviours which you're talking about are instilled in the pilot in that early flying when he's flying solo in a reasonably high performance twin, going off and doing his own thing, which um, he won't get that example of or that experience of in an MPL course. That may well be true, but of course you would also argue that at the end of the day, you know, if you think about the controlled environment of the classroom in the simulator in particular in the simulator, when you're looking at trying to recognize, identify behaviors, there's far more potential for identifying them and resolving them there in the simulator than there is by people boring holes in the sky on their own. Hello, Steve. Uh, Ian Kennedy, uh, Flight Training British Airways. Oh, and by the way, ex-flight engineer. So <laughs> I don't really want to take this point uh, to talk about po uh, pilot performance. So can I get that out of the way? Absolutely. Um, but you talk about multi-layering training. Uh, by that comment, uh, does that mean extra time and therefore extra money, and are airlines going to be willing to pay for that? I, I see no alternative. You know, if, if you look at the normal content of an initial type rating course for what is now a very complex airplane, whether it's a, an Airbus A320 as a starter jet um, or a new generation 737, the simulator content has largely not changed materially since the days I did a 707 type rating, if anything, it's less. You know, and you would argue why. Well, we, we know it's cost-driven. It, it, it has to be. But, you know, there is a point at which we can't afford to save that money. There's a point at which we must accept we're going to spend it. That's the point. Uh, in this day and age, we're talking about cost-cutting all the time. Yep. Sorry. Yep. Absolutely. I wish I had the answer. Um, okay. I guess it's not becoming an accountant, is it? Uh, no, I'm not an accountant, by the way. <laughs> David Rollner, retired training captain and training manager. And I, I just go back to one of the questions, one of the points that was made at the beginning, which is about going back to basics. I think you could argue the case that it doesn't actually matter. If you're talking about recognizing 
situations and issues and what to do with them when you're in the cruise in maybe several years down your career. It doesn't really matter, perhaps, whether you've come through the MPL system, because all the evidence is that people who haven't come through the LPL systems have had these, these situations anyway. Because they wash out of your, out of your competitism brain um, because of the highly automated aircraft. Isn't it a matter whether it's pitch and power, which is one of just one of those basic rules? Your five degrees, mine was two and a half degrees. Two and a half degrees nose up, 85%. You won't die. Well, unless something falls off. But I mean, um, so those basic things don't require a restructuring, a retraining. I'd like your comments on what actually it needs is more training for the trainers. Because it doesn't need a new detail, an extra simulator detail, to actually install those ideas in people's minds. It means in a routine detail, the trainer needs to be aware that they should introduce those concepts to the individuals. It's a training skill. And the idea of training trainers and training quality and monitoring quality of trainers so that a quality control training captain can sit in on a training detail at no prior notice, a non-jeopardy situation, but give feedback to the trainer as well, builds quality in the training um, side of things. And that's where the, the core, that's where the young people learn their skills from the old souls like us who were, who were training them and so on your comments on whether that is, you think, is a, a cost-effective way and a practically effective way of, of actually recognising some of the issues that you raised in your, in your lecture. No, I think it is. Uh, you know, we all know that, that in any training system, uh, and having managed certainly one or two in my time, the recognition is that you have some very high-quality trainers in your system, and we also know that at the other end of the scale, regrettably, you have some people who are okay but not as effective as they could be. And we all know that in training terms, the easiest thing to talk about and to focus on is pure performance. Why didn't you fly that profile correctly? Because I was a Pratt chief, I got it wrong. It's more interesting, I think, as a trainer to say, why didn't you fly that profile correctly? What is it about the profile you either don't understand or don't have the capacity to actually apply? What is it that you need to make it work consistently, not just once, consistently. And for me, I think it takes down, not necessarily that we spend more money doing more training, but we use the money we do have to do more effective training. I'm going to draw a line under it there because um, we're bang on our limit of 7 o'clock. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll agree with me that uh, uh, the sincerity and the sheer passion of Steve's uh, lecture and the way he's answered the questions very, very ably for us this evening uh, has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and Steve, I'd like to thank you once again for being so kind and generous to come here and deliver a very inspiring lecture this evening. Uh, as a small token of our appreciation, oh, tie. you can add another society tie <laughs> to your collection. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can we please show our appreciation to Captain Steve Williams?